This is the DFW Experts Corner. We take you into the world of Dallas-Fort Worth's most knowledgeable professionals. From legal to health, from home improvement to financial, we cover it all. Now, here's your host, Kevin Ebelin. Good morning and welcome back to the DFW Experts Corner where we cover legal, health, home improvement, and financial. We are on on-air live streaming at watchonairlive.com. You can also find us on the on-air live mobile app. We're going to be diving into the legal aspect of the show today. I want to welcome first-timer Stephanie Holen to the show. She practices criminal defense, family law, and military law here in Dallas, and you have your own practice. Thank you so much for being here today, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. So uh, before I really get into what you do and what kind of cases you work on and all that stuff, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background, how you got involved in this? Because I know you're somewhat of a jack-of-all-trades. Law isn't the only thing you do. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different stuff. So just talk to us about, tell our listeners how you got involved in law. Okay. Well, uh, when I was a little girl, apparently I was just as sassy as I am now. And my parents like to say that I was born within just a inborn sense of justice in dealing with other people. And the very first experience that I had where I was taking up for something else was we raised chickens. I grew up on a two acre little farm and my dad told me he was going to go outside to get chicken. And instead of walking towards the front door, which is where the cars are to go to the store, he stood up and walked towards the back door. And I was three years old sitting at the breakfast table and all of a sudden the dominoes start clicking. I'm like, oh my God, he's going out there after my chickens and I got their eggs every day. (laughs) These are my pets. And I was like, no. And so I was just in a nightgown and I ran outside and they have a picture of me standing in front of the chicken coop with my hands latched through the fence, basically giving my dad the hell stare, which is like, you can take the chickens when you kill me. So no more chickens ever died on my property. So you just had this and then innate sense of uh, right and wrong in your eyes. Oh, yeah. And my parents have multiple stories. Um, Things that I told PE teachers, I had asthma. I still have it, but it was really bad when I was little. So I had a PE teacher who told me that I needed to run. And I turned around and said, tough titties at the kitty, but the milk tastes good. And would just stand up for myself. And I would stand up for anybody else. So as soon as I knew what being a lawyer was, I was nine years old, and that's what I wanted to do since then. But it's not what I've done my whole life. I was going to say, I mean, from that age, you carried that uh, mindset with you the rest of your life. But I mean, as far as your educational background, that's not that wasn't your first love. No, the the original path was that I was going to go to undergrad at the University of Texas, which is where I did my undergrad work, and that I was going to go into Texas's law school. That was the entire reason I went there. And about two years into undergrad, I had this revelation that being a sociology major, which is a fascinating study, and I still love just wasn't going to lend me any solid employment opportunity after I got out of college. And I wanted no matter what for my degree to be worth something. Right. And so I thought, hmm, what's something that I could work with everywhere? And, you know, I'm no engineer and I find it exceedingly boring. I'm grateful they're out there, but it's just not me. And I was like, well, um, I'll go into education. That's something I could move to China with. I could teach English. I could do anything. And people are like, oh, you went into teaching because you love kids. And I was like, oh, I hate stupid people. Yeah, I'm you trying to curve it when they're options. young. Exactly. And so then when I got my teaching degree, I moved to Dallas and I actually taught in Lovejoy ISD for two years. And then when I was working there, I was recruited by Highland Park. And so then I came and I was working in the Highland Park School District. And then um, when you work for Highland Park, you're required to get your master's degree. So I remember asking him, I was like, well, what if I went to law school instead? You know, it's still an advanced degree. And they're like, well, it really needs to be school related. So I was like, "Mm, 
And I got my master's degree in curriculum and instruction. And I actually was still a teacher, but I was a master teacher. And I wrote curriculum for the state, worked on the state tests. And then um, I moved from Highland Park and I taught one year in Richardson. And during that year, um, my daughter was still really young. And yeah, and, how long of a time span here between when you first started going to school to this point? So I started undergrad in 98. I graduated from undergrad in 2003. <clears throat> Uh, I started working in Lovejoy in 2005 when I had moved to Dallas, and then I worked there until 2007 or 2008. Then I came over to Highland Park, and I worked until 2010 or 11. I, the years are fuzzy now. And then I moved, and I worked for one year. Yeah, it was 2010. And then I moved to Richardson for 2010 to 2011. And I've been a single mom since my daughter was two, and at the time she was seven. And I went back and forth. Do I go when she's little and miss all these cutesy preschool moments? And, you know, you really right. have that fear. They're going to forget who you are. Of course. And then I was like, or do I wait when she's in high school? Because I still wanted to be a lawyer the entire time. And I, you know, wait until she's in high school. But then I was like, well, you know, that young girls really need their moms when they're in high school. So it was really torn. And so I prayed a lot. And then one day, uh, one of my students brought a gun to school in Richardson. And he was coming to shoot one of my other students inside my room. Now, he was arrested before it happened. But that moment, I knew I would have stepped in front of the other kid. And I would have looked at the child who had brought a gun. He was only 13. He had been in juvie at the age of 12. And Is it safe to say almost you're kind of a magnet for these kind of intriguing events on some level? Because, I mean, how many teachers ever experience something like that? You know, thank God that it's not very many teachers who experience something like this. But I really remember being really disturbed because they didn't lock the school down. Yeah. And then they didn't really come over and make an announcement. They didn't. You'd think and, that'd be a huge deal. Well, exactly. You'd think days. you would be. And, and that's what typical drills are in the other schools I've been in. And in this one, yes, they deal with a harder crowd and there's a higher demographic for crime in that particular junior high. But I just knew that I would have tried to talk to the kid and I've been like, you're going to make a real permanent decision to a temporary problem. And I went home that night. It was a few days before my, I turned 30. My mom was like, Hey, what do you want for Christmas? I mean, your birthday. And I was like, uh, I want, I want you to buy the LSAT. I don't want to pay for the law school admissions test. So right. they bought that. I took the law school admissions test in February and I started law school in July, went through for three years. Then I got out and I was general counsel for um, 19 different companies. I left there. I worked with a personal injury firm. And then after doing that for, I guess almost a year and a half, two years, I was like, okay, well, I need my own schedule. And then I left and I started my own firm. Okay. Now you do all kinds of different, I mean, you spend, you do a lot of litigation. Yes. Primarily, I mean, of the three, the military law, family law, criminal defense, which one occupies the most of your, of your time? Currently family law occupies most of my time. Um, but that's not by choice. I was going to say, what's the most interesting and exciting? Um, you know, honestly, the, the answer is still family law, but I like criminal defense a lot more. And I always swore I was going to be a prosecutor growing up. So the fact that I practice criminal defense now is a great, you know, plot twist. And then military law is a small section, but most of the reason that's a smaller section of my practice is because most of our veterans and most of our service members don't even know that they're protected by these laws. I work a lot with right. federal laws that protect veterans. Um, we actually have a bunch more to get to, but we do have to take a real quick break. You are listening to the DFW Experts Corner. For more information on Stephanie Holen, our guest, you can visit holenlaw.com. We have a lot more to get to. We will be right back after this on On Air Live. More of the DFW Experts Corner is next on On Air Live.
You're tuned in to the DFW Experts Corner. You are listening to the DFW Experts Corner on On Air Live streaming at watchonairlive.com. Don't forget, you can also take us with you on the On Air Live mobile app. You can also find all of our shows at the Apple iTunes Store. I'm your host, Kevin Ebling, and I'm joined in studio by Stephanie Holen, Dallas attorney extraordinaire, criminal defense, family law, and military law. Right before the break, we were talking about criminal defense a little bit, and that's what I want to jump into next. What kind of cases would you say are most typical that you come across in terms of criminal defense? In terms of criminal defense, most of the time you're either looking at um, higher-end misdemeanors like uh, Class A or Class B. Class C is, you know, a driving ticket. Um, Class B, DUI, Class A, you're getting into, you know, higher-level crimes and then felonies. Where okay, most of my offenses are Class C, so... Yeah, okay. no, you're pretty <laughs> safe. Most of those you can take care of relatively inexpensively and really quickly. Um, but normally Class C is like your traffic violation or you've stolen something $500 or less. Once you bump up that $500, then it bumps you into a Class B, which, like I said, is the same class. So for each crime, they have Class A, B, and C. And so you look at the levels of crime. And then the Texas Penal Code is very long, and that's why lawyers speak it, and it's not important for everybody else to know. It's just really good that I know how to read it. And in Texas, like the, you know, the rest of the country, people love to drink. So I would oh, imagine you see a lot of DUI cases. You see a lot of DUIs, but surprisingly, I see more burglaries. I see more higher like felonies. or breaking into a vehicle? Uh, um, no, actually breaking into places, um, breaking actual into home stores. Actual invasion. Home invasion. Um, and... Mm, I wouldn't say most of the time. I'd say about 50-50. Some of it is gang-related activity. And the other that I see is when they're burglaring a place to burgle something, they're also going in to steal. And so, you know, first you've got breaking and entering one. Then you've got stealing. And then when you take the value of whatever they're stealing, and then if there's a gun involved, well, then there's sentencing guidelines. So sometimes you'll hear, oh, well, this person was charged with, and they'll say something like a Class B misdemeanor. But there's this insanely high penalty. But what you're not hearing are all of the other charges that were kind of negotiated out of the picture. So sometimes right. you're having this really high sentence and they're like, oh, well, it was just this high sentence for this little bit of drugs. That makes no sense. And really, it's the higher sentence because not only were they having drugs, they were also involved in an active sale and there were guns. And then, you know, they had broken in somewhere to do it. And so then most of the time you're looking at the domino effect, I think. Most crimes don't occur in isolation. And I'm a bit of a layman, so I mean, is there always the opp uh, opportunity afterwards for like, you know, a, a appeal or a reduced sentence on something like that? Um, you have, the way an appeal works is that you could file an appeal, but there's no chance that it would be granted. But when you're dealing with something like that, people assume that you just automatically get this appeal. Most people think, oh, well, you know, all of these people who get, you know, can they'll try to appeal and they're like, oh, well, I'll just go to the Supreme Court. That's not the way it works. It stays in-house, in-state first. And so you can appeal, but the thing they're looking at is what's called appealable error. So an appeal doesn't mean I get to go take a second chomp at it. You, you got your first thing. When you appeal, you have to have some error to appeal on, which means right. the judge overruled something they shouldn't have, or they, you know, it, admitted evidence that completely prejudice the jury or prejudice the judge. You have and to have something new to bring to it. Well, you have to have 
they screwed up somehow in the first part. So because they screwed up here, that means I'm in trouble. So you need to find on appeal that they messed that up and reverse it. You have to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. Well, just you have to get there. And the funny thing is that people are like, oh, appeals. And you think you get to rehear the entire... That's that's not that's how it I works. That's what I thought. Exactly. Yeah. No, they call it uh, one bite at the apple. They tell you all the time, you get one bite at the apple. So then if you appeal, you can't bring in all this new information. It has to have been heard in the first hearing, first trial. And you can't come up. The only time that happens is like if somebody's been accused of murder and they're on death row and, you know, they file something called a habeas corpus, which means they're held and even those aren't granted all the time. And the only way that those are ever granted is if it's proved, conclude, like DNA evidence finally comes out. Because, I mean, we have 40,000 rape kits in Texas that haven't even been tested yet. So, it's not one of the, oh, we're going to send it to the CSI lab and it will be back in yeah, 15 40, minutes like 000? a TV show. 40,000 untested rape kits. That's just rape in the state of Texas. That's not the entire United States. It's disgusting. And I mean, and will that ever be addressed? I mean, or did they just chip away at it? Or you think a lot of them will just completely slip through the cracks? I don't think it'll slip through the cracks, but you're looking at a department that doesn't get the attention that it needs. And it's just kind of on... It's almost on the back burner and the people who are working there work really hard. It's not like they're not testing. It's just that they have this incredible backlog. And so when you're looking at that, that's the only time that let's say, you know, I had been convicted of rape and so then I'm in prison. Well, the, sometimes the only way that I could get my appeal granted is if when that kit is tested, which could be years, right. like I said, it's a 40,000 test backlog then they can look at it and be like, well, it was absolutely impossible that this is the person and then you can get out. But those are very rare. It's very rare that that happens. So the way that the appeal system work, it's it, it's even confusing for lawyers. That's why they have certain lawyers who only do appeal work just because it is so, so nuanced and it's so much less in scope than what you think. And and if you do go to the mo proper motions, you know, and for your appeal, but then you lose your appeal, is it worse for you now than it would have been than it originally was? Um, is there a downside if you lose? I mean, you're just you're just stuck with it. I mean, basically, you're in that. As one of my law professors used to say, he coined the term that it was uh, Texas slash Latin for toughest luckus. You know, you lose your appeal, you lose your appeal. Right. And. You know, people can try to invent new reasons to appeal, so you'll get that sometimes. But the problem is that it's such a it's such a stretch at that point. That's when you're really hoping that, you know, that DNA evidence finally gets tested or whatever it is in your case that could completely prove that you're innocent. But unless that happens, well, I guess you're out of luck. And, and since I have no idea what it's really like to be in a courtroom, I think most of our listeners are probably the same way. So just out of curiosity, I mean... What is the? Is it extremely difficult to defend a, a breaking and entering case or a home invasion? I mean, what kind of evidence do you typically deal with in those cases? Um, a lot of times you'll have camera evidence, sort of the things that you'll see on the news. You'll have uh, cell phone location pings. You know, I mean, just most of it's pretty basic. Like if you can prove that that person's phone was... People will underestimate how much data their phone tracks on right. them. Like, even if you turn off location services, there are still sensors in your phone. I can find you. And so if I can track your, and that's something that really not everybody's trained to do, but you could learn to do it. So the cops can pull that data. I mean, and that's one of the more high-tech measures, but the conventional well, ones still work as well. I mean, you know, fingerprinting or video surveillance, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, I find that a lot of times, you know, when it... 
you hate minimizing any crime, but the less of the crime, the less likely it is that you're much more likely to see the actual team in there dusting for prints and everything when it's a more severe thing. You know, if we're talking somebody stole an iPhone, they're not exactly in there, you know, dusting for exactly. (laughs) And so most of it's just, they got caught there. They were arrested. They got found with, you know, whatever merchandise was stolen, um, I saw a really funny Judge Judy clip the other day and there was a woman saying, well, they stole my wallet and they stole everything that was inside my wallet. And she looked really blandly at them and was like, well, what was in your wallet? And she's like, well, $50 and my IDs and a lot of gift cards. And then she said that some like little piece of equipment was in like her earpiece or something. And without even having it be his turn to talk, the guy on the other side of the room goes, "Uh, that was not in there, ma'am. So obviously, and obviously yeah. they had it. And so, you know, <laughs> there, cool it that one actually made me laugh really hard. And she goes, judgment for the plaintiff and you owe blah, 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 blah in money. And so that's pretty funny. It really doesn't happen that easily in court. Because most people aren't that dumb. Most people stay quiet and most good lawyers will tell them like, mm, it's better that we're not saying. And you, uh, when you get into higher level crimes, like the Orochi trial that yeah. went on in Collin County, they were talking at one point that was um, they allowed cameras in for the filming of that one. And in it, sometimes he was turning around and he's like laughing with people behind them. And even though the jury's not allowed to see that everybody else who's watching, I mean, you really have a lot of public opinion against you when you, Hey, you've been accused of aggravated kidnapping and we think you killed somebody and you're just sitting there laughing in the courtroom. Yeah. It doesn't make anybody look good. So also another good tip is that we teach decorum. Don't be in there. Don't roll your eyes. You're not allowed to chew gum. Stand up straight. Keep your hands at your side. And that's if they're out on their own and they come to court. A lot of times. Attire is something you want to be. Yeah. A lot of times they'll bring them over from the jail and they'll come out of a little. There's like a door right behind the jury box and they'll come out of that door and they're shackled at the wrists and at the feet. And then there's a belt around their waist. And I think that um, I took a. One of my friend's sons wants to be an attorney. And so she asked if I could take him. So I took him to criminal court and I wasn't having a hearing that day, but I let him sit in judge's courtroom and he was sitting there. And by the end of the day, he was like, oh my gosh, we've been here for an hour and a half. And I watched all these people. He was keeping a tally on how many years of prison they had been sentenced to. And he's like, it's yeah. over 75 now. And so when you see that and you see what it's like to actually watch someone's freedom taken away. And I mean... It's a great deterrent for... There, uh, it's a great deterrent for this <laughs> young man, activity. but also it's a very humbling. And it's one of the reasons that there are people who are accused who are innocent. And a lot of times people who are accused, they don't know their rights. And that's why I practice criminal defense. You have amendments. It's very uncommon for me to be able to pull some random person off the street and go, quick, name the first 10 amendments. They can't do it, but you know you have the right to be free from search and seizure, which means that if the cops are going to search you, they've got to have a really good reason. And you don't get arrested for saying something offensive on the news. If they did that, that violates your First Amendment right. And so I went into criminal defense because it was really sad. I, I watched a lot of people while I was in law school where they would say something and they were representing themselves. And you would think that they were... Um, helping and the problem is that they were giving over so much information because they didn't have an attorney with them that all they were doing was feeding the other side softballs to serve up and it was really difficult I was a law clerk for a judge there and I remember it's the only time I ever walked out of a courtroom with tears in my eyes because I watched this guy who in my opinion I really don't think that he did 
what he was accused of doing, but he didn't know any better. And so he just kept talking and kept talking. And the more he did, the more incriminating things. But it wasn't about exactly what he had been accused of. And also like your right to remain silent. He didn't know he was digging a hole. Yeah, exactly. And so that was really heartbreaking. And it was repeated things like that. And then I had a, a friend from high school that I had not spoken to in 20 years. And she sent me a Facebook message and was like, hey, I'm really sorry that this is the reason I'm talking to you after 20 years. Right. And I just started laughing and I wrote back and I was like, what did somebody do? And she's like, well, it's actually, and it turns out that this former classmate of mine had become a teacher and one of her coworkers, her son had been accused of five felonies at once. And he grew up in a town and they're from a town that's about seven miles from my hometown. And my hometown is very rural, white country, um, and, and by, I mean, I call it Podunk, but I'm from there, so I think I can get away with it. But it's just a very small country town, and so is the next town over. And I would say both are Title I schools, which means they're very, very low-income areas. So you're dealing with very low income, very low education. And I knew that if this boy was found guilty of those and he went to juvie, which is where they, they had already put him there, which is a whole miscarriage of justice on the other hand, but school districts have him things that they can enforce because there's a school code and then you have the regular penal code. And so this kid was getting slammed on both sides. And I knew that if he was convicted, he was never going to have a life where he could ever have any kind a of normal, right. Um, he would be, and I hate saying this, my dad does drywall. So I mean this with all respect, like I grew up in skeletons of housing watching my dad build, but that is hard labor right. and it's physically hard. There's job, absolutely but. nothing wrong. We need that. But if he was convicted, he was going to limit himself forever to only jobs like that because how many places want a felon working for them? Right. And to have that so young and already have the odds stacked against you that you don't have the income, it was heartbreaking. And that was my first criminal defense case because I knew I just couldn't. He already came from my background and he already had all of these risk factors because you are low income. You don't have access to I mean, just the difference between my high school, which was a great experience for me, but compared to Highland Park High School, which is where my daughter will end up going, the opportunity, like we have study abroad and we have, you know, Latin and fr- I mean, just... So that was almost a perfect case to cut it your It really off. was. And it was also really rewarding because I knew what it would be if you got stuck in my hometown. And again... I have a lot of great friends who still live there, so I don't mean anything. So the outcome, I mean, overall of this case? I got all five felonies dropped. Wow. So there's not even a blip on his record. And that was really rewarding because, um, and and I want to put a caveat on that because I'm a mother and I'm a teacher. And so I do not believe that you should uh, be able to do... He had done things that made it look like he had done something, but it really turned out that he really wasn't... um, the person that had done the things that he was accused of. There was an arson charge. There were several other charges. He was not actually the person. It really was mistaken identity. He wasn't there. And so I still made him. We had apology letters to the school board. We had apology <laughs> letters to the county yeah. board. We had apology letters to our parents. We did 60 hours of community service because I really, and that was my doing with the prosecutor and it wasn't to get charges dropped. I just said, look, he really needs to understand what a sacrifice because again, his parents had to pay me. And there's an, I mean, especially from their background, that was extremely difficult. And I was like, no, we need to impress upon this young person that we better be careful who we're around because that can get us in a lot of trouble. No, and I think, yeah, that case is a perfect note to end the show. But I have tons more that I'd like to talk to you about. We only got to about a third of it. 
So we'll have to get you back in here soon. And uh, also, just want to let people know you will have your own programming debuting on our network soon. So we'll have more information on that to come. Stephanie Holland, thank you so much for joining us today on the DFW Experts Corner. You can find out more on Stephanie at holandlaw.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we'll see you guys next week on the DFW Experts Corner on On Air Live.